listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff. So we have a very distinguished guest with us today. He drove a taxi in New York City as a college student. That's Charlie Green. He's the co-author of The Trusted Advisor. We've talked about Charlie many times on this podcast, and we certainly come back to his seminal work a lot in the things we do. So we're going to talk about cross-selling today, and we couldn't think of anybody better to get here than Charlie. So Charlie, why don't you do a quick introduction to yourself? I did kind of a a clumsy one, but take us into your story. A little bit before we jump in. Okay, well, very quick nutshell. I'm from the Midwest. I lived 20 years in Massachusetts, 20 years in New Jersey, a year off in Spain, undergraduate degree in philosophy, got an MBA from Harvard. As I said, 20 years in consulting, and and then I co-wrote that book, which made kind of my second career. Wrote two books after that, Trust-Based Selling and the Trusted Advisor Field Book. And, you know, turned out to make a career out of talking about trust, and here we are. Super cool. You cannot be a Midwestern Renaissance man. <laughs> Where in the Midwest are you from? I did not know that. I always thought well, you think of you from Boston. Ah, uh, well, no, just 20 years. Uh, family, grandparents, aunts and uncles, parents, all from Nebraska. Yeah. I grew up in South Dakota, Michigan, mostly Michigan, upstate New York, Syracuse, and then to New York and, you know, then Boston and so forth. Gotcha. Are you a Wolverines fan? <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. No, ah. no, uh, a Cornhusker still and a Spartans, Michigan State Spartans. So loyalty so, Good choices, hard. good choices. All right. You just got a demerit. Uh, no, you got a bonus. Okay. You got bonus. <laughs> bonuses. So let's talk some cross-selling here. So Jeff, you made the point when we set this up. You said we, we should open this with a, what is cross-selling? So let's create a definition here for you know consulting firms or professional services firms. When we're talking about cross-selling, what are we even talking about? I think that was directed at you, Charlie. Okay. All right. Although I want to get your take on it, Jeff. You may have a slightly different angle. I've always thought of it as one of two things. It's either selling existing services services you're already selling to a client, to a new client within that client organization, or it's selling new services to an existing client within that existing client organization. Either way, it's selling stuff into an organization which you already have as a client. That's how I think of it. Very simple. And that's standard Harvard business strategy right there. Yep. So it should be really easy. (laughs) Yeah, most things, it may be simple, but it ain't easy, right? You know that distinction. Every client, every consulting firm I've ever worked with, every single new client engagement, you start with this conversation about, well, we we need to cross-sell more. I mean, it comes up in every single firm in in existence. So I guess maybe why is it always top of mind for firms? Is is it just that firms just feel like they're woefully under-monetizing their client relationships or something? Like, Why is that top of mind for every managing partner, practice leader in on the planet. <laughs> What's your take? Well, I'm not sure how well it is. I think no. you're right. And it should be. And I, I don't think most uh, professional services people fully understand why it's so important and then why it's so difficult too. We get to that later, but let's just take a second yeah. on why it's so important. You're raising. I go back to two things that I learned. One of them was, you know, I think it was 96, Fred Reicheld did a lot of work with Earl Sasser at Harvard Business School around what they called loyalty. Fred Reichel wrote a book called The Loyalty Effect. Reichel was with Bain, and he's better known for inventing the yeah. NPS, Net Promoter Score. But I've always thought the loyalty work he did was more powerful. That was, to me, when I first discovered that, I thought, oh my God, this is a bigger strategic insight than Michael Porter 
and five forces and BCGs, barnyard matrix. This is this was it. And the one fact that I take away from that book and from their work, and they did this across lots of industries, it costs you roughly four to seven times as much to generate a dollar of business from a new client as it does to generate a dollar of business from an existing client. And as I said, they developed that over all kinds of industries. But for professional services, which is what I was in, it's especially profound. I had the luxury at that point. I was in a staff position in a a medium-sized consulting firm, about 800 people. So I had the luxury of taking a year to kind of reinvent that research around our own data. And what I found was this, the biggest single time, you know, any professional services firm is basically time for money. You may or may not bill hourly, you may bill daily, you may not even bill time-based, you put it together project. But basically there's a correlation between how many people and how much time they spend. And the biggest single non-billable time, according to timesheets and most companies' records, it's not training, it's not even vacation, it's sales, sales and marketing, time spent looking for billable time. A typical professional services firm, maybe they have a standard 40-hour week, and maybe they manage to bill 31 or 32 hours. Well, what if you could get that billing rate up to 38 hours? Yeah. You know, the, the leverage is, is incredible because there's no cost associated with it. Everything is fixed. It goes straight to the top line, straight to the bottom line. It has a huge impact on profitability, bonus pools, et cetera. When you marry those two facts together, you know, uh, the biggest single non-billable component in, in, on a timesheet of, of a professional services firm and four to seven times leverage, well, that's where it applies. The unused, unbilled time, if you can affect that to a degree of 400 to 700%, there's your key to profitability. In fact, if you don't have a certain level of repeat business, you're going to go out of business. But if you're kind of in the normal mid-range, this is the way you ratchet yourself up rapidly, slingshot yourself up to massive profitability. So that, you know, figuring out how to focus more of your efforts on existing clients just has an enormous amount of financial impact. So that, I think, is why people intuitively recognize, gee, we should be doing more work with our existing clients. Most firms don't. I haven't looked at numbers lately, but it wouldn't surprise me if, on average, most firms spend half of their sales and marketing budget on new clients. Well, you're going to have to spend some. You can't, you know, you got to have new blood and so forth, and it costs more to do it. But half is wrong. You know, you should be putting more effort proportionally, and you get a huge impact out of it. So that's the rationale. It's economic, I think. It very much is. It's kind of hard to argue with the compelling argument you just made, (laughs) right? You know, yeah. that's for sure. I find in the firms that, that I work with, they don't even think of it in those financial terms and costs like you just right. described. They may think, oh, that's the shortest line between point A and point B. And okay. there's a time element to that, but a speed like, hey, we can go get this business quickly, which may be true, maybe not, but it sets a wrong expectation about the nature of the relationship and how you would enter into a cross-selling situation. Yeah. But they definitely think about what you said there. It is true that it takes less time, but if that's why you go into it, it'll blow up in your face. It was funny because as Jeff was saying that the first thing that hit my mind was it's like, we have the author of the trusted advisor here and that state very statement goes against trust. It's like, (laughs) if your goal is to accelerate your revenue path then you're probably breaking trust in the process. Well, that's exactly right. And the paradox is if you don't make that your goal, if you're willing to focus on the good of the client and the relationship, it will go faster because people trust you. 
but you've got to have your motives straight. You've got to have your objectives and your goal level thinking straight. Otherwise, it just like we're all saying, it blows up yeah. on you. Yeah. You know, an, an, another financial aspect of this that I think is really important. My sense is when somebody already knows you and you're coming in with another solution, they're not nickel and diming you for this or that. If you say it's going to cost this amount, they're going to say, okay, yeah, I trust you. We're going with that amount that there's the possibility of larger engagements as, as well. Well, there's a whole bunch of things. You go back to that Reichel's loyalty book. He lists a lot of reasons why there is that impact. And most of them rhyme with trust. You know, they know you, you know their processes, you speak their language, you understand the metrics, they've gotten used to you, they've cut you some slack, you cut them slack, you're more honest with them, you're open with them. All those kind of rhyme with trust. And guess what? When you trust somebody, things do go faster and they cost less. So I think you're, you're right that, that people intuitively feel that and they think, oh, good speed. But the thinking is, you know, we're, we're mixing up the goal with the, you know, ancillary effects. If you make it your goal, it won't yeah. work. If you focus on helping the client, deepening relationships, the, the byproduct, the offshoot is things get done faster and more profitable. So let's go underneath that a little bit. Let's go underneath reasons it doesn't work. Why do firms struggle to successfully sell more deeply into their client relationships? You hit on the first one, right? Is is maybe the goal is wrong? They're they're approaching it the wrong way. They yeah. they're, they're in, you know what? What else? How else do they they mess it up? Well, that is the, the big one, I think. <laughs> the big one. But there's another, the, the most common. And let's go down a level, operationally, behaviorally. The single biggest problem that I see is driven by fear. Basically, people approach cross-selling as a question of expertise. So, what happens if you've got a client X and you say, "Gee, you know, there's some business over there with this other division in your company. You know, and we have some people. We got a guy named Bob." You know, here's Bob's card. You should introduce Bob to so-and-so over there. And what does the client say? They say, okay, thanks. You know, give me the card. You know, let me think about it and maybe I'll call him. They never call him. Why? Because you you took your hands off and you said in a number of ways, trust me, my guy is great. Oh, why should I trust you on that? Trust me, you know, phone this stranger. Everything will work out. Why would I trust you on that? What you need to do is when we behave that way, and this is the most common mistake, we're mistaking the expertise. We say, we've got an expert in this problem. That's what you need. Dial this number, look up this website, you know, call this business card. No, what you need is to work the relationships. You need to, you know, say to your friend, tell me more about that business over there. What's going on? What's your insight? You need to go back to your guy internally and say, I've got this client over over here, but I don't know that much about it. Make me a little smarter. How do I talk to them about this? So that you end up working two relationships, your internal relationship to your guy, Bob, who knows this stuff, and your client relationship to the person that you know. And if you work those relationships, you don't have to be the expert. I guess what's underlying all that is people think we have to be an expert in everything we do. You really don't. All you have to know is enough to be able to define the problem well, not look stupid, and productively put together, ah, I see what the business issue here is. Oh, yeah, well, by the way, let's bring an expert in that here. But the owner of the primary relationship has got to be the one that sets up 
the relationships that are going to solve that problem. You can't just pass it off to an in-house expert. That doesn't work. And I think that's probably the, the behavioral level biggest mistake. I love the way when you when you unwrap that story real quick, you, you highlighted how impersonal it was. It was like, yeah. here's a phone number. Here's a guy's business card. It's like there's not really any personal investment from the relationship lead to say, well, let's, let's make this connection. Let's have the conversation. Let me steward it right. the way you described in the end. And, and right. I, actually, I, you know, what also came to my mind was you think about some of these big diversified firms, and I'll, I'll point at the accounting firms for a second, and how they're kind of these right. you know, quasi conglomerate messes, right? And they have all these you know pockets of expertise. And how often is that lead? I think about my own business, actually referring their clients outside the firm because they don't have any trust with the practice lead for appraisals or something. Right. And that's even worse. Yeah. I mean, talk about it just struck me that the fear and Jeff talks about this a lot, but the fear is both ways. The fear is, you know, the fear is, the fear is fear inside the firm. That's right. <laughs> anyway. Absolutely. The phone calls yeah. coming from within the house. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, the other thing in Charlie's example there that, that I've seen in my experience is oftentimes that internal partner or customer or peer that you're working with, going back to the expectations of cross-selling, it can be a taker, right? They yes. want the quick hit. They're like, hey, introduce me, get me in fast. Or what you described, Charlie, isn't readily scalable because it takes time to have that conversation to get smarter. And people don't want to have that conversation. They want to just say, well, just put me in front of your client and I'll tell the story to that client, not have you tell the story for me. And it begins to break down there as well because there's no internal trust to build on either, even though they say they trust one another. Right. Now, it's a great example. I think to go to the trust side for a minute, it's not reasonable to expect that you can create trust with your clients if you can't create trust internally. (laughs) People just don't work that way. And if if you're a client and you observe some untrusting, untrustworthy behavior between players on the the provider side, it's going to make you very suspicious. Hey, if they can't get along and trust each other, why should I believe, you know, I can trust them? Good question. Yeah. I'm curious. Did you see that a lot in your in your career? I mean, you've worked with tons and tons of, of firms and organizations, and it just strikes me as like, is that something you saw that's frequent, that there's just like lack of trust between partners? And Yes. And again, I think it does come down to fear. The most structurally common one, I, I don't know how it is these days, probably the same, but people on an audit within, let's take the big four firms, the audit people are reluctant to do, to cross sell something to consulting because they might mess up yeah. the relationship. Now you got an audit client, it's guaranteed seven years. It used to be yeah. guaranteed forever. Mm-hmm. And you bring in some hotshot consultant who's working short term and, and messes up and, you know, it ruins your annuity. And so there's a lot of hesitation to bring that in. And just normal human nature, combined with this tendency, everybody who goes into professional services is very much at effect of this belief that it's all about expertise and the relationship stuff doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And it's not all about expertise. The relationship stuff does matter. So, you know, we all need to get that one right. Well, you would think over the years, people would finally get that. You would think, I've got enough gray hair, I can now say this, you know, there's always a new generation of people coming in and they're always as stupid <laughs> as the last one. <laughs> 
So, you know, the good news there is there's room for guys like us who sell, you know, consultative services to people to help them remember or rediscover this truth. On some level, maybe it's pessimistic. I don't see a huge amount of forward motion. It's the same stuff playing out over and over. Jason, I think he was talking to you and I about being the next stupid well, generation. Well, you know, I've, I've always embraced that with gusto. You know what I actually really like about your work? And I won't profess to know it in and out clearly, even as well as Jeff does. But that notion you just talked about, the relationship between relationship and trust. And so much for years, I always felt in marketing, it was a challenge because relationships are earned, right? You know, you see firms do this all the time. They, they market and talk about relationships and trust, but you can't talk about relationships and trust. You have to show them and earn them. But what's so powerful about yes. your work, and I want you to talk about this for a few minutes, is actually so much of the trust mm-hmm. quotient and the way you frame it actually develops relationships I think very quickly based on what I see. It's not about this thing like, hey, oh, you got to earn it over seven years. It's like, these are some things you can do right. you know, very early in a business relationship to earn that trust you know, at the onset. And I, I, so yeah. I, I just want to get you to talk about that. I, I, I know it's a very vague question, but just- No, 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 no. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, the book, The Trusted Advisor that you're talking about, I'll yeah. do a shameless plug here for a second. The 20th anniversary edition of it very just nice. came out a year ago. We rewrote it to some extent, but basically reaffirmed the base. And it has to do with personal trust. A lot of what you read in the business press these days has to do with institutional mm. trust. Mm. You know, if you think about it, but but I would argue, you know, you can market, you can, you know, put the PR out as much as you want. If you don't trust the people delivering the job, what good is all that? Yeah. And does that, you know, so it's got to come partly from the heart. And to your point, Jason, I think one of the biggest myths is that trust takes time. We've heard that one all people yeah. say that all the time or variation on the theme. Trust takes a you know, lifetime to build and a moment to destroy. No, it doesn't. That's not true either. But in particular, trust gets created in moments and they're moments of courage and clarity and connection and, you know, a raised eyebrow, you know, the, the courage to say to ask a question at a moment in time, the way that you phrase it. It's subtle stuff. It's about when people say, ah. Oh, this guy's not trying to BS me, you know, or wow, that was, you know, an interesting question. And so that stuff does not take an awful lot of time. It, it does take more than anything, oddly enough, it takes courage, the courage to get over the fear of making yourself look, you know, potentially silly or at harm or something by taking a risk, a, a, a personal risk with somebody else. So, yeah, I think that explains a lot. You know, people in professional services tend to be risk averse. That's massively true of lawyers. It's pretty much true of accountants. It's even true of consultants. We're all kind of personally risk averse. So you look at the people that go into this kind of business, they tend to be lone sport people. They're marathoners, they're swimmers, they're tennis players. They're not middle linemen on the football team, right? And they're comfortable with their solitude and they like to believe that where they got is because of their expertise. They love to be in a meritocracy because they feel that they got what they got because they earned it. Well, there's some truth to that. But the truth is the really good longstanding relationships are because they're willing to be vulnerable, willing to put themselves out. And when you do that, when you learn how to behave that way in lots of little ways, you find out, for example, in the sales process, people think, well, you have to have trust before you go sell them because you're going to draw down on it. No, you create trust in the yeah. sales process. One of my favorite stories I often use to open up keynotes is I was at a, my first big sales meeting and the client asked me and my boss was there with me to kind of back me up. And the client looked at me and said, what experience do you have doing industrial marketing for sandpaper? And I thought, 
well, what do I say? And I'm trying to tap dance, and my boss blissfully interjected and said, none that I can think of. What else do you want to talk about? And I thought, that can't be right. You don't say that. But, you know, what my boss said was exactly, you know, who's going to doubt you on that? You know, nobody. When you say, I got no experience, it's the most honest thing you could say, and it happens to be true. And in an instant, you know, that client recognized that at least my boss, anyway, was a truth teller, somebody you could trust. And he did it in the most counterintuitive way by admitting his ignorance, which we're all scared to death to do. And we're back to fear, afraid that we'll look incompetent, afraid that we'll lose the deal, afraid, afraid, afraid. If you're afraid, you won't take the risks. If you, if you don't take the risks, you're not going to get the vulnerability. You're not going to get the trust. Trust comes with risk, and we're too risk averse. I am so happy you told that story. I was going to try to pull that out of you because I found it in, in an article I read that you, you'd said that somewhere. I was like, I want to get him to say that because I love that story. It's a really good one. And I, and I laugh because I remember... You know, like a decade ago, I went through sales training, of course. You know, I've, I'm always trying to get better at what it is I do. Sure. And I remember one of the things that we talked about was this idea of the, it's okay to say you you don't know something, right? And so I, right. frequently I started doing that. But I wasn't really sure why I was doing it other than like, you know, I'm told this is going to be helpful. Yeah. But you didn't get the big picture of it until you've done it for a while. And you suddenly realized, well, yeah, this is about being honest with the client about what you really don't do and don't know. And then exactly. open up the door to, well, let's go figure it out together. Because you don't know it. I don't know it. But we both work together. We trust each other. So let's go figure it out or find someone else that, that, that can come into this relationship along with us and be the third party to help us figure it out. So. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Let's shift gears a little bit. And we've talked a lot about why cross-selling isn't happening inside of firms or why they're failing at it. But let's talk about you know how you do this well. And, and I guess I'll lead you a little bit in that I'm really curious to hear if some of the biggest reasons it's failing is fear, maybe lack of trust within the firm. How do we break those things down? And maybe what are some tips that, from, from you in terms of how firms overcome those seemingly big problems inside their culture or inside their firms. That, that's kind of where my head's on it, but certainly take us anywhere you want to take us. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good way to tee it up, actually. Yeah, how do you do it right? And, and you're right, on some level, the problems are big. On some level, it's fairly simple. I, yeah. I think, you know, we touched on this before. The main thing to do is to focus on the relationships between the cross-selling parties here and not on the expertise. So you start breaking your head around. Let's say that you're the manager in charge of the existing relationship, okay? You're the key person. You've got two key relationships, or three. One is with your existing client, one is with the new potential client, and one is with your internal expert. And you need to work all three of those. And the way you go about it is you be honest with everybody and you say, listen, I'm not an expert in this area. I'm going to talk to my guy internally. I want to talk to you and I want to talk to this person. I want you to help me, you know, frame up what the issue is here. Here's what I see it as being, you know, to the best of my ability. Tell me what I'm missing here. 
You go to your internal person and say, make me smarter. I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to put you in a risky situation until I know that I'm teeing this up rightly. I'm bringing the right information to you. Carry that attitude with, with everybody. And you let all of them know, I'm going to be at all the meetings until and unless this thing gets legs and you all feel comfortable working with each other. I'm not going to leave any of you until that happens. So you work those three dimensions. And throughout, your mental attitude is always, well, here's what it seems like to me. What am I missing? What's going on here? Here's my hypothesis. Help me understand where I'm wrong. What I'm, I'm not an expert here, but I can see this. And you focus on the business issue. It looks like you got a cost problem. It looks like you got a customer retention problem. It looks like you got a customer satisfaction problem. You know, nobody expects you to be an expert in that area. So get over this notion that only the subject matter expert can deal with it. No, don't let the subject matter expert in the door until you've satisfied the clients and the subject matter expert that they're all being put into a tenable situation. That's all relationship work. So it means you need to get used to being vulnerable, you know, admitting you don't know everything to recognize that it's okay. You need to be careful and slow and recognizing other people's feelings. And you say stuff like, gee, if I were in your shoes or help me understand, you know, maybe I'm missing something here or at the risk of, and you bring in all these issues and you gradually refine the pro the business problem that is presenting over there. And it's either real or it isn't. And somewhere near the end of that, you bring together your internal subject matter expert and the new potential client. And you're there yourself because that's key. And, you know, as they begin to, it's kind of like, I think I use the analogy of setting up a friend, a couple of friends on a blind date. You know, it's not, uh, you care about both of them. It may or may not work. It's not your fault if it doesn't, but you'd like to, you know, give them a good chance. So you tell each one of them about the other a little bit and you'd be sort of honest and you make sure they both know that you have their best interests at heart. You answer any questions they have. You take it easy. You don't hands off them and you send them an email and say, have a good time. You know, you kind of stay involved. What I love about what you just said, you actually described what good cross-selling looks like and what good referrals look like at the same time. That's like true. If, you know, if like what, you know, because how often do you get these like weird referrals that come out of nowhere? And it's like, right. that's not really what I'm looking. Why are you sending this to me? Who is this? Right. You know, <laughs> who are you? And, the, and so it's, I love that you just basically said, that's how a trusted advisor gives a referral. And so you gave, you gave people you know, two blueprints and one there. It's a gift, gift that keeps on giving. Well, that's good. I like that. Yeah. I love that analogy. It makes me wonder, Charlie, because we all know those people that have gotten burned trying to set people up on blind <laughs> dates and say, I'm never going to do it again. And then you have those that take pride in all of the marriages that they've fostered through their blind date yeah. hookups that, you know, I always give this advice to my clients. In our marketing model, the heart of it is the cultural DNA of the firm. Right. And there's a lot of dimensions that go into right. that. But that cultural DNA dictates and limits, unleashes what we can do from a marketing perspective and by extension, a sales yeah. perspective. I always say we cannot do cross selling if your people don't trust one another, if you don't have yeah. a culture of trust. So I don't go down that path. You know, maybe that's the fifth thing I would do, even though you want it to be the first because of all the economics that yeah. you said. But if there's no culture of trust there, can you really create a cross-selling culture yeah. in one that doesn't exist? Or do you just get these like individual mavens that are really good at cross-selling and they kind of try to feed the rest of the firm? Well, you're raising a really big question there, Jeff, and it's one that I grapple with. 
take that big picture. Do you start with individual trust or do you start with institutional trust? If you focus on all the social cultural things and you focus on that, you're going to wait a while for that all to affect the individuals. And some of it's necessary. There's got to be changes at the, at the cultural level. On the other hand, you know, some of that stuff can take a long time. It's a valid way to, to think of the infectious disease model of change rather than messaging and principles find heroes and stories and individual people that you can proselytize to people who have the dialogue we just had and who light up and say oh my god that's right i know how to do that send them out make heroes of them let them do it so and i think that for this particular issue that may be better you know focus on the individual training and 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 less not less but you know at least as much as all the cultural aspects because you can end up waiting a long time to cross sell if you're waiting to create a culture of trust on the other hand if you can get a few people who seem to know how to do it that's going to help you create that culture because those people are visible, right? They're making, so it's a two-pronged approach. You got to hit it culturally. You got to make it individual too. At the end of the day, trust is experienced at the individual level. You know, sometimes you go straight to it. I think it's the best way to go. All right. So my new approach is I'm just going to give people your card. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to give them their card and then I'm going to introduce them and I'm going to nurture the relationship and bring you in. Yeah. And you're going to change individuals, make heroes, and there you go. I was just going to say, just text them an empty it. phone number. Well, you know, this guy may or may <laughs> not be able to hey, help you. Charlie, call this guy. Good luck. <laughs> I got a, I got a luck, appointment right. on number one. <laughs> so, in the interest of time, Jeff, I feel like we've had this sort of like really just great opportunity to spend time with Charlie. And before it slips away. Are there any burning questions that you just love to ask Charlie, whether it's about cross-selling or not, don't care, but that, that we'd love to ask him about trust, about business, life, whatever? Because I know I have one, and, I, and so I'm going to let you go first. Boy, I didn't expect that, but that's a great thing to do. Charlie, I'd be curious to know, after all these years in professional services, two things. Why did you stay in this space? And what's the biggest advice you'd give to somebody coming into this space now? I stayed, you know, partly out of momentum. I didn't know anything better, but I think a, a better answer would be, I like the people aspect of professional services. It is about people and, and you know, to study it and think about it, it's partly psychology and partly sociology. And, and it's not just economics or production or whatever. So the, the, you know, the people component always fascinated. I mean, you hear a lot of firms say that our most important assets go up and down the elevators every day, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's to build a business out of people. I just find it fascinating. So that, that I think is a lot of what kept me. Single biggest piece of advice, get over your damn self. <laughs> no. uh, the one thing I've learned, I'll go to the gray hair here, is that the, my big life lesson is nobody listens to what I tell them to do. I'm not in charge of anybody. You know, I speak uh, adult children and ex-wives, so I know whereof I speak. <laughs> but more broadly, you know, people don't follow advice. People, uh, you can influence people. You can help people see their own truth. And to do that, you kind of have to empathize with them. You have to understand where they're coming from. You have to, you know, the, the skills of relationship building, which on some level we all learned in kindergarten and then promptly forgot by being overeducated. Those are the fundamental skills. You know, how do you create relationships with other human beings? It ain't that complicated. Like we said at the beginning, yeah. it may be simple, doesn't mean it's easy, but it is simple. 
So, you know, and getting yeah, over yourself I, is the biggest part there. You know, if you can focus on other people, they're all wrapped up in their crap too, you know? So pay attention to their stuff. Give up worrying about yourself. Oh, that's, that's great advice. That is great <laughs> advice. And you, you reiterate something, a wise person. I think I might've read this in a book or, or somewhere that intelligent people prefer to agree versus obey. Oh, I like that. And I, I, I think that's so true because when I came into this business, I always wanted to get people to obey and it doesn't work. It's not the way. I don't like happens. obeying anybody and I'm sure neither of you do. Yeah. <laughs> but agreement, I love agreement. Yeah. I, oh, that's a wonderful quote. I like that. Very insightful. My question will be much simpler. So I opened this podcast really with a purposeful statement about your experience driving a cab. But what I love about you is we've got this distinguished published author, Harvard MBA alum, who who makes a point of telling people that he drove a cab. So so tell me something that you took away from that experience as a New York City cab driver that informed everything that you did from there on out. Something you learned in that experience. That's an experience that everybody would like to have at one time. Yeah, I drove a cab for a while. It was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. I, you know, I've never thought about what I learned from that. I've never had that question. I, I guess I, it was a crazy time in New York City. And most of my friends got held up by, you know, drug addicts and stuff. I never did. Yeah. But I had some crazy moments. And I guess the big thing is I look back on it and I think I had never driven a car in New York City before going out in a taxi for the first time. <laughs> yeah. And you grew up in Nebraska, of all places. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> It was easy to get a chauffeur's license, so anybody could get it. I look back now and I think, oh, my God, what was I thinking? So if anything I take away from it, it was maybe I was too stupid to know I was taking a risk, but I'm glad I did. It was a wonderful experience. I learned a ton. Again, it's either useful to be stupid or to expand your risk-taking ability. Uh, maybe that's what I, yeah. I got from it. Well, folks, I think we learned why, you know, the, the, the taxi drivers in New York don't know how to get anywhere is because they're, that's probably true. they're, they're more likely <laughs> to be, uh, you know, uh, best-selling authors than they are <laughs> taxi drivers. <laughs> I insanely enjoyed this. It was a real pleasure meeting you. I was blessed, guys. Uh, Thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate you coming on. I think we learned a ton about cross-selling and, and more importantly, we learned a lot about trust. So thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for everything that you've contributed to the world of professional services over your career because it's it's big and it's a lot. And I encourage everybody that 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 if you've not read The Trusted Advisor or or the, the field book, do it now because it will help your career immensely, especially if you're on the ascendancy side of it. Unlike Jeff and I who are on the descending side. I'm <laughs> so. Hey, Charlie, where can people find you and your wonderful firm and, and all your great thinking? The website is trustedadvisor.com. It's spelled with an O-R-T-R-U-S-T-E-D-A-D-V-I-S-O-R.com. And my email is cgreen, C-G-R-E-E-N, at trustedadvisor.com. If that's not trust, I don't know what is. It gives this email out to anybody listening. <laughs> I love it. You know what? I'm not going to get a flood of emails. <laughs> I'm, and I'm be delighted to hear from anybody who's listening to this. That's the truth. Well, thank you, Charlie. I think you're going to get a few. Thank you, Charlie. Hey, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh, oh.